0: Welcome to Barry Pirro's Haunted Happenings podcast, where I share in depth stories of the paranormal, the supernatural, and the unexplained. So turn off your lights, sit back and prepare to be scared. By the time Amelia Earhart set out to be the first woman to circumnavigate the globe, a journey that was to be her last, she had already broken more aeronautic records than any woman in history. She was an adventurer, a trendsetter, a successful entrepreneur, a celebrity, and a voice for women. And in the short time that she was a pilot, she became the most recognized aviator in the world. Roaring into the Oakland airport, she brings to a triumphant finish her 2,400-mile hop from Hawaii after 18 hours in the air. 10,000 cheer the end of the epic flight as the Lady Lindy slides into a perfect landing with two records first woman to fly the Pacific and the first person to fly it solo. She receives one of the most tumultuous greetings ever accorded a flyer. How does it feel to fly both oceans, Miss Earhart? Well, it was very interesting to me to fly in southern waters rather than in the north. On the Atlantic flight, I had ice conditions and general storm. On this flight, really no bad weather at all except a few little rain squalls. I saw the moon and stars most of the night. Of course, in both flights, I was very glad to see land. Amelia Mary Earhart was born on July 24, 1897, in Atchison, Kansas. She first became interested in flying when she was 24 years old after attending an air show with her father in California. In 1921, just six months after taking her first flying lesson, She bought her first airplane. A year later, she broke the world altitude record for female pilots, and she didn't even have a pilot's license yet. That would come a year later, on May 16, 1923, when she became the 16th woman in the United States to be issued a pilot's license. After becoming a member of the American Aeronautical Society, she began writing newspaper columns promoting flying. Her local celebrity grew, and in 1928, she was offered a chance to be the first woman to fly as a passenger across the Atlantic. The flight put Earhart in the public eye, and she used it to her advantage. She set out to break as many records for female pilots as she could. In 1929 and 1930, she broke the female aviation speed record. In 1931, she became the first woman to fly an autogyro, which is something like a cross between an airplane and a helicopter. That same year, she broke the autogyro altitude record, and in 1932, she became the first woman and only the second person to fly solo and non-stop across the Atlantic. She was also the first person to ever cross the Atlantic twice by air, and she became the first woman to fly solo and nonstop across the United States. The press loved Earhart. She became known as Lady Lindy because it was thought that she bore a resemblance to Charles Lindbergh. She was also known as Queen of the Air. Earhart was a trendsetter in every sense of the word. By 1933, she had her own clothing line which included 25 outfits, from dresses and skirts to pants and outerwear. After this, a wide range of promotional items bearing her name began appearing in stores. By 1937, Amelia Earhart had done more than anyone in history to advance female pilots, but there was still one record that she was determined to break. She wanted to be the first woman to fly around the world. By now, she had the financial backing to attempt such a feat, and it seemed that nothing could stop her. Earhart's attempt to be the first woman to circumnavigate the globe began on May 21st, 1937. She took off from Oakland Municipal Airport in San Francisco Bay in her personally designed Lockheed Electra 10E. Making the flight with her was Fred Noonan, a skilled navigator who was experienced in both marine navigation and flight navigation. The first leg of the trip was an unpublicized flight from Oakland, California to Miami, Florida. When she arrived, she publicly announced her plans to fly around the world. Earhart and Noonan departed Miami on June 1, 1937, making numerous stops in South America, Africa, the Indian subcontinent, and Southeast Asia before arriving in Leh, New Guinea on June 29. By now, They had completed about 22,000 miles of the voyage. With only 7,000 miles remaining, it seemed that nothing could possibly stand in Earhart's way of becoming the first woman to circle the globe. But as fate would have it, the final leg of the journey would be plagued with problems. After arriving in Ley, Earhart sent her husband a telegram that said, in part, Radio misunderstanding and personnel unfitness probably will hold us one day. The personnel problems she mentioned might have referred to Noonan, who is known to be a heavy drinker. But whatever the personnel and radio issues, Earhart didn't let them derail her plans. The Electra was fully serviced on July 2nd, and she and Noonan departed from Ley with about 1,100 gallons of gasoline. They had to fly another 2,500 miles before they reached their next stop, Howland Island, an incredibly small, uninhabited coral island in the Pacific Ocean. A special airstrip had been constructed on the island to accommodate the planned refueling stopover, after which she would head to Hawaii and finally to Oakland, California. The Coast Guard cutter Itasca was waiting at Howland Island to guide Earhart, In 1937, we didn't have radar, so the Itasca was sending up smoke from the ship's funnel to help Earhart spot the island. The expected flying time was about 20 hours, and the aircraft was expected to arrive at Howland on the morning of July 2nd. The reason she was to arrive on the same date as she left Ley is that she would be crossing the international dateline. Up to this point, Earhart and Noonan had relied on radio communication to send updates about their location and to help guide them safely from one location to another. But from the start, there were serious problems. Neither Earhart nor Noonan knew Morse code, so she decided to get rid of the telegraph code key transmitter on her plane, feeling that it would just be dead weight. Instead of Morse code, Earhart planned to communicate by voice at higher bandwidths. But in addition to ditching the telegraph transmitter, she made another colossal mistake. She also got rid of a trailing antenna that would have allowed her to use the 500 kHz marine frequency. Without this antenna, she would only be able to use a limited number of frequencies to communicate with those on the ground. But ditching the trailing antenna did something far more dangerous. It prevented ships and marine shore direction finding stations from taking radio bearings on the plane. To put it another way, no one on the ground would have any way of knowing where she was if she lost radio communication. Given the remaining radio frequencies that she was able to use, she knew that the only way that she could be tracked in an emergency would be to transmit continuously for several minutes at a time. 14 hours and 15 minutes into her flight, The Itasca received a garbled transmission from Earhart. She said something about cloudy weather, but the rest of the message was unintelligible. Though the messages themselves would eventually become clearer, their content became worrying. Earhart radioed, We are circling but cannot see the island. We cannot hear you. Although the Itasca had been transmitting continuously for hours, she apparently had only received one message from the ship. Earhart continued to broadcast on schedule, roughly on the hour and half hour, and the strength of her radio signal indicated that she was close to the island, but she said that she was still unable to see it. Because she was unable to use the radio direction finder to zero in on the island, she and Noonan had to rely on sight. The weather around Howland was clear, but there were clouds about thirty miles northwest. Howland Island is very low, and the shadow of clouds could have made it difficult to distinguish the island from the shadows. If Earhart had flown into clouds along the way, it could have prevented Noonan from taking the sightings he needed to navigate precisely. In addition, the charts he was using were a few miles off. Because the island they were aiming for was so small, even the slightest error in navigation would put them in a perilous situation. Earhart's radio transmissions are the real beginning of a mysterious disappearance. At 6.44 a.m., Earhart radios, will whistle in microphone, about 200 miles out approximately, now whistling. She was whistling into the microphone in hopes that someone could hear her and get a bearing on the plane. But for some unknown reason, she stopped transmitting the whistling sounds after a short time, and she wasn't heard from again until a half hour later. 7.11 a.m. Earhart radios. Please take bearing on us and report in half hour. I will make noise in Mike, about a hundred miles out. 8.12 a.m. Earhart radios, we must be on you but cannot see you, but gas is running low, been unable to reach you by radio. We are flying at 1,000 feet. 8.28 a.m., Earhart radios, we are circling but cannot hear you. Go ahead on 7,500 with a long count, either now or on the scheduled time on half hour. 8.30 a.m., Erhard radios. We received your signals but unable to get a minimum. Please take bearing on us and answer 3105 with voice. Amelia Earhart's last confirmed words were spoken on July 2, 1937 at 843 a.m. We are on line 157-337 north and south. We will repeat message. We will repeat this on 6210 KCS. After that message, repeated calls from the Itasca went unanswered, and it was assumed that the Electra had gone down somewhere in the Pacific near Howland Island. Within hours of Earhart's disappearance, President Roosevelt authored a massive search and rescue mission of unprecedented scale. Ships and planes from the U.S. Navy and Coast Guard scoured some 250,000 square miles of ocean. But after searching for two weeks, no trace of the plane or of Earhart was ever found. In its official report, the Navy said that Earhart had run out of fuel, crashed into the Pacific, and drowned. But from the very beginning, not everyone agreed, and over the years, many theories have come out and have been put to the test. Some seem very logical, scientific, and plausible, while others are simply outlandish. One of the most convoluted theories about Earhart's disappearance is that she not only survived the crash, but that she returned to the U.S. and lived out the rest of her life under an assumed name in a small town in New Jersey. The name that Earhart supposedly took, that being Irene Bolum, was an elaborate cipher that spelled out in degrees and minutes of latitude and longitude the precise location of the beach where Earhart crashed after being shot down by the Japanese. But Irene Bolum wasn't just some fictional character. She was a real person, a businesswoman and resident of Monroe Township, New Jersey. How could such a preposterous conspiracy theory ever see the light of day? Well, the story goes that in 1965, Joseph Jervis was invited to speak at a gathering of retired pilots. Jervis was a highly decorated veteran of World War II, the Korean War, and Vietnam. He served as a command pilot of B-24, B-29, and C-130 aircraft, with over 16,000 hours of flight time. After speaking at the event, Jervis was introduced to Irene Bolum by one of Amelia Earhart's friends. As soon as he laid eyes on her, Jervis immediately thought that Bolum looked like an older version of Amelia Earhart. Besides the physical similarities between Bolum and Earhart, Jervis claimed that Mrs. Bolum wore two medals that day, awards that had been presented to Earhart during her career. From that day on, Jervis began researching her past to prove that Irene Bolam was in fact Amelia Earhart. Using Jervis's shoddy research, in 1970, author Joe Klass published the book, Amelia Earhart Lives. After the book's release, Mrs. Bolam furiously denied the book's allegations, saying, "The a fantastic story which makes me out to be some kind of a mystery woman who is undoubtedly Amelia Earhart, is utter nonsense. I am not a mystery woman. I am not Amelia Earhart. Although Bolum had been a pilot in the 1930s and she had known Earhart, many mutual friends, such as air racer Eleanor Smith, also knew both Earhart and Bolum. Bolum's main career from the 1940s on wasn't even in aeronautics. It was in banking and finance. McGraw-Hill pulled the book from the market shortly after its release, but it was too little too late. Bolam submitted a lengthy affidavit refuting the claim, then filed a $1.5 million lawsuit against the publisher. The evidence Bolam presented to the court included her 1937 private pilot license and her marriage certificate. Her personal life was a matter of public record, but the authors of the book purposely ignored any facts that went against their outlandish theory. After the book was published, Earhart researchers examined the photos of Bolam taken the day she met Jervis. Although Jervis claimed that the medals she wore that day belonged to Earhart, upon closer examination, it was clear that they didn't even resemble those awarded to Earhart. The defendants filed a motion with the court, saying that it was reasonable to conclude that Irene Bolum was really Amelia Earhart. They asked the judge to dismiss the case, but in 1975, the court denied the motion. After their 1976 appeal was denied, McGraw-Hill reached a private settlement with Bolum for an undisclosed amount. Upon Bolum's death, Jervis sought permission to photograph and fingerprint the body but it was denied. In 2006, a criminal forensic expert was hired by National Geographic to study and compare photographs of Earhart and Bolum. He cited many measurable facial differences between them, concluding that the two people were not the same. End of story? Not quite. Three additional books were subsequently published that continue to claim that Mrs. Bolam and Amelia Earhart were one and the same person, despite all of the evidence to the contrary. One widely embraced theory of what really happened to Amelia Earhart is that she and Noonan missed Howland Island, then crash-landed on a remote island. Flight accident investigator Rick Gillespie has been investigating Earhart's disappearance for several decades. In his book, Finding Amelia, the True Story of the Earhart Disappearance, Gillespie hypothesizes that Earhart and Noonan didn't crash into the Pacific, but rather landed on the reef of Gardner Island, now known as Nicomaroro. The island is on the 157-133 north-south line that Earhart mentioned in her last transmission. It's just 356 miles from Howland Island, her intended destination, and it was the only nearby landmass substantial enough to serve as a landing strip. Nikumaroro was well within the Electra's range, even taking into consideration the fact that it was low on fuel. Gillespie believes that after crash landing on the shore, Earhart and Noonan sent radio transmissions to the Itasca. These messages were never picked up by the Coast Guard cutter, but many believe that they were heard by dozens of civilians around the world. Immediately after Earhart's last official radio transmission, other radio messages were picked up, not by the military, but by people who just happened to be listening to their radios. They were shocked when they heard Earhart's pleas for help. And they reported the messages to the authorities. While some of these transmissions were obvious hoaxes, many researchers believed that several others were genuine. One credible report came from a Texas housewife named Mabel Larimore. In 1990, she submitted a report saying that she had heard Earhart over her radio on July 2, 1937. She said that she accidentally stumbled upon a message from Earhart while scanning her home radio. Her statement read On the first night of Amelia Earhart's disappearance, I heard her SOS loud and clear. Her message stated that the plane was down on a small, uninhabited, uncharted island. The plane was partially on land, part in water, and she gave the latitude and longitude of her location. I listened to her for 30 to 45 minutes. I heard her message around 2 a.m. daylight savings time from my home in Amarillo, Texas. She stated that her navigator, Fred Noonan, was seriously injured and needed help immediately. She also had some injuries, but not as serious as Mr. Noonan's. Although Mrs. Larimore didn't come forward with her story until 1990, Research shows that the Itasca and another ship both reported credible but undecipherable voice transmissions at the exact time that she claimed to have heard Earhart. That information had not yet been compiled or published when Mrs. Larimore filed her report, and the content of the message she heard matches the content in other civilian reports that were filed at the same time. What Gillespie found most intriguing about the radio signals that were picked up in the week following Earhart's disappearance is their alignment with the high and low tides on Nikumaroro. If the plane landed during low tide and was stuck in shallow water, then Earhart and Noonan could only send out distress calls when the plane's engine could run without flooding. This would have been only when the tide was low, usually at night or early in the morning. And indeed, transmissions that were heard by various people around the world occurred only when the tide at Nicomararo was low. Another compelling bit of evidence about these mysterious radio transmissions is the fact that private citizens who didn't know each other all heard similar messages. At first, they were pleading for help, then after a few days they became more desperate. For example, on July 4th, two days after Earhart's plane disappeared, a San Francisco resident picked up a message believed to be from Earhart that said, Still alive. Better hurry. Tell husband all right. Over the next few days, messages continued to be heard by various people, and they all mentioned water. Five days after the disappearance, on July 7th, Thelma Lovelace of St. John, New Brunswick, Canada, heard a woman's voice coming over her radio. Can you read me? Can you read me, the voice said. This is Amelia Earhart. Please come in. We have taken in water. My navigator is badly hurt. We are in need of medical care and must have help. We can't hold on much longer. Gillespie believes that this was Earhart's last broadcast to be picked up by a civilian, or anyone else for that matter, and that the pair died as castaways. Now you might ask, if the Navy was listening for Earhart's radio message, then why were civilians able to pick them up when the military wasn't? Well, for one thing, the Electra's radio was designed to communicate only within a few hundred miles. If the plane crashed 356 miles away, direct radio broadcast wouldn't have been heard. But in order to understand how civilians could have heard Earhart's calls thousands of miles away, you have to know a little bit about how radio signals work. In addition to regular signals, radios simultaneously transmit harmonic signals. These travel upward, skip off the ionosphere, then bounce back to Earth. This type of ionosphere bounce transmission is popular with ham radio operators because these bounced signals travel far greater distances than direct signals. So even if a direct radio signal couldn't be heard by ships over 300 miles away, one that bounced off the ionosphere could easily have been heard thousands of miles away. Critics of the theory that the plane crash-landed on Nicomararo point out that three Navy planes flew over the island on July 9th, a week after Earhart's disappearance. They reported seeing signs of recent habitation, but they didn't see any sign of Earhart, Noonan, or the plane. But if the Electra had landed on the island, how could it have disappeared so quickly? One theory suggests that the tide dragged it out onto the coral reef on July 7th and it was pushed under the water where it couldn't be seen from the air two days later. This would make sense based on the radio messages people heard saying that the plane was taking on water. Skeptics question why Earhart and Noonan weren't spotted during the three flyovers. Although Nicomararo is a small island, it's covered with thick, dense vegetation. If the radio messages that civilians picked up are to be believed, then Noonan was gravely injured when the plane crash landed. It's possible that he died soon after the last transmission. Earhart may also have been injured. If she was too weak to come out from whatever shelter she sought on the island, if she was unconscious, or even if she simply happened to not be on the beach when the plane passed over, she wouldn't have been spotted from the air. One gruesome theory about why Earhart and Noonan's bodies were never found on Nicomoraro has to do with one of the island's inhabitants, the giant coconut crab. These monstrous creatures grow to over three feet long and can weigh as much as nine pounds. Their large claws have the force of approximately 675 pounds of pressure. For comparison, The strength of a human grip is only about 67 pounds. Experiments involving pig carcasses have shown that coconut crabs can remove the flesh from a body within two weeks, and they've been seen dragging the bones away. So it's possible, even probable, that if Earhart and Noonan died on the island, The crabs would have picked their bodies clean of flesh, then dragged the bones to various parts of the island or into the ocean. Now, if the pair were stranded on the island, one would think that there would be at least some physical evidence connected to their attempts to survive there. Over the years, many expeditions have been launched to find such evidence, and artifacts have been discovered that suggest that Earhart and Noonan may have survived for a time on the island. In 1940, a British expedition arrived on Nicomararo to see if it would be suitable for a settlement. As they scouted the island, they came across some rather unusual objects. A human skull and other bones, a woman's shoe, a box made to hold a navigating sextant that had been manufactured around 1918, and a bottle of herbal-based liqueur that Earhart was known to drink. Although the shoe... Sextant box and the bottle were intriguing finds. To date, no one has been able to directly connect these artifacts to Earhart or Noonan. The skull and other bones were shipped to Fiji, where they were studied by a doctor at Central Medical School. He took a series of measurements that he recorded in his notes, and he concluded that the bones didn't belong to Earhart, but rather to a middle-aged stocky male about five foot five in height. Everyone was so convinced that the bones didn't belong to Earhart that they simply lost track of them, and they were eventually lost. Today, many people believe that the doctor was incorrect in his assessment of the bones recovered on the island. A study published in 2019 by Professor Richard Jantz from the University of Tennessee reassessed the 1940 measurements. Using modern forensics and a computer program designed to aid in determining age and gender from bone measurements, Jantz concluded that the lengths of the bones were similar to Amelia Earhart's. But of course, without the actual bones themselves, we can never be certain. Various archaeological digs have been conducted on Nicomararo, and some tantalizing artifacts have been recovered. One was a broken jar that resembled a freckle cream jar that Earhart was known to use. Another was a charred bottle with a wire attached to it that seems to have been used to boil water. But critics point out that Earhart would never have bothered carrying a jar of freckle cream on the flight. She would have just considered it dead weight. In addition, the product that she used came in a white glass jar— The jar found on the island was made of clear glass. Skeptics also point out that the island was visited by many people over the years, so the artifacts could have come from anyone. In fact, the British attempted to colonize the island in 1938. By 1939, there were 16 men, 16 women, and 26 children living there. But because of a lack of drinking water, the colony was abandoned a few years later. So between the people who scouted the island, the 58 people who lived there, and an untold number of people who paid a visit to the island over the years, the artifacts could have come from just about anyone. In 2019, famed ocean explorer Robert Ballard led an expedition on Nicomararo to try to locate Earhart's plane. After days of searching the ocean using state-of-the-art equipment and technology, Ballard did not find any evidence of the plane or any associated wreckage of it. One of the most intriguing Earhart theories is that she was on a spy mission for FDR, who was her close friend. Supposedly, Roosevelt secretly arranged for her to deviate from her route to Howland Island in order to determine whether the Japanese were building airfields and naval bases on nearby islands. The theory goes that the Electra was shot down by the Japanese, Earhart and Noonan were imprisoned on the island of Saipan, and they died or were executed about a month before U.S. troops invaded the island. The hypothesis fits the recollection of William Sablon, a resident of Guam whose uncle Tun Akin Tuho worked at the Saipan prison camp in the 1930s. In a 2017 New York Daily News interview, Sablon said that in 1971, his uncle told him that he recalled how two white pilots had been interned for several days at the Japanese prison camp at Saipan in the mid-1930s. According to Tuho, An American woman and man were found in the southeastern islands and were brought to the camp for questioning. This was so unusual that it caused quite a stir in the otherwise quiet prison. Tuho surmised that when Imperial Japan was told about the pair, they decided to secretly execute them in order to avoid an incident with the U.S. After the war was over, Earhart and Noonan's bodies were supposedly exhumed by the U.S. military and shipped back to the United States. The U.S. kept quiet about the recovered bodies to avoid any further incidents with Japan after the war. Tuho's story and the theory that Earhart and Noonan were Japanese prisoners of war isn't a new one. In 1960, CBS radio reporter Fred Gorner interviewed several witnesses who said that two white flyers, or spies, had been picked up on one of the islands before the Second World War. The witnesses all claimed that one of them was a tall white woman with short hair and that she was dressed like a man. In 2017, Josephine Blanco Akiyama, who grew up on Saipan, said that she vividly remembered seeing Earhart and Noonan when she was 12 years old. She said that when she saw Earhart, she didn't know she was a woman at first because of her short hair and masculine-style clothing. But as she listened to everyone talking about the event, they kept referring to her as a woman flyer. Akiyama said that she later heard that Earhart and Noonan had been executed. An elderly Japanese woman, Nieves Cabera Blas, said in an interview that she actually witnessed Earhart's execution on Saipan. She said that she saw Amelia being led to a pre-dug grave. Her executioners ripped the blindfold off of her, threw it in the grave, then shot her twice. She fell into the grave and was immediately buried. However, there are other witnesses who claim that Earhart died of dysentery while held captive on Saipan and that Noonan was beheaded. No U.S. military or government documents exist to lead credence to the story, and the Japanese government continues to maintain that they had nothing to do with Earhart's disappearance. But many people still believe that the pair was captured by the Japanese and that they were held at Saipan prison camp. And there is quite a bit of evidence to suggest that this is exactly what happened. Many theorists point to the transcripts of Earhart's last radio transmissions. She claimed to have been unable to hear anyone as she made her way to Howland Island. But this might have been a lie. If she was flying a secret mission to spy on the Japanese, the military would have known that her radio conversations were being monitored she would have been instructed to say that she couldn't hear the transmissions and that she couldn't get a read on the Itasca because of radio problems. This would have allowed her enough time to fly over the Marshall Islands, gather information, and then return after pretending to have gotten back on course again. Proponents of this theory point out that Earhart's behavior during the time she was supposedly lost over the Pacific and desperately low on fuel was nothing short of bizarre. Although she was scheduled to broadcast on the hour or half hour, she was smart enough to know that she should have abandoned that schedule in an emergency. Throughout the period that she was supposedly lost, there was a total absence of urgency in her transmissions. Considering her dire situation, she should have been trying continuously to establish two-way communication with Itasca. She and Noonan both knew that sending very long transmissions was the only way the Itasca could get a fix on them. But during each of her broadcasts, she never stayed on for more than seven seconds. Why would she do such a thing? Supposedly, to prevent anyone from getting a fix on her position. Mike Campbell's impressive book, Amelia Earhart, The Truth at Last, takes a detailed look at all of the missing Earhart theories. He's convinced that Earhart and Noonan were sent on a secret mission by FDR, that their plane was shot down by the Japanese, that the Electra was recovered, and that they were prisoners on Saipan. He believes that Roosevelt had direct knowledge of Earhart's capture and that files and documents that would prove this, such as intercepts of Japanese transmissions, were removed or destroyed. There was a massive cover-up to protect the president because if word ever got out that he had essentially abandoned Earhart on Saipan and never even attempted a rescue, his political career would have been in shambles, Campbell presents compelling evidence to support the theory that in July 1944, Vice President Henry Wallace told FDR that the Electra had been found on Saipan by U.S. military. Roosevelt's immediate response was to order the plane's destruction. Many U.S. soldiers stationed on the island after it was seized from the Japanese have reported that the Electra was hidden in a hangar on Saipan. Once they were given the order, The U.S. military brought the plane out, doused it with gasoline, and destroyed it by setting it on fire. Amelia Earhart was just 40 years old when she vanished somewhere in the Pacific Ocean, but her impact on the world of aviation is immeasurable. She is undoubtedly one of the most influential and famous pilots in history, not only because of the stunning number of accomplishments she made in the field of aeronautics, but also because of the legacy of her disappearance. This past July marked the 85th anniversary of Earhart's disappearance, and interest in the mystery continues. Books and articles continue to be written, expeditions are launched to investigate the areas where she is thought to have ended up, Old theories are tested and new ones are born. Whatever the truth is about her disappearance, I think her words best sum up her sense of adventure, even at the end of a long and dangerous journey. In writing about her life as a pilot, Earhart once described how she felt at the end of a long flight. She wrote, There is no doubt that the last hour of any flight is the hardest. If there are any clouds about to make shadows, one is likely to see much imaginary land. As I approached shore, I strained my eyes to see something recognizable, but there was nothing. However, I noticed a low place in the hills, and I thought, like the bear, that I would go over the mountains to see what I could see. If you're enjoying the podcast, please follow me and leave a comment. To contact me, use the email address listed in the program notes. I'm Barry Pirro, and this is Haunted Happenings.